Let's turn in our Bibles to the Word of God. Uh, let's turn to the Word of God. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts, Acts 25. We're going to read verse 1 to verse 12. Acts 25, verse 1 to verse 12. This is the holy inspired inerrant word of God. Verse 1 says, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender, or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me. No one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Thus far reads the word of God. Well, last week we... We spoke a little bit about God's providence, and I, I hope you don't feel uh, that it, uh, I'm being too uh, monotonous or not choosing a different subject, but we will speak again about God's providence. In fact, uh, throughout this exposition of the book of Acts, I think uh, more often than not, I've mentioned, uh, or one of the themes that most often has been mentioned is the providence of God in history. Uh, in accomplishing his wise will. We cannot fail, as we read through the, the book of Acts, to perceive that, that God is in control, to perceive that uh, although some of these things are apparently at the time disjoined and disjointed, and, and they are apparently unrelated, they actually cooperate perfectly in, in the sovereignty of God to the furtherance of God's kingdom in this world, and for the good of his people. And that is true of our own lives. There are, times, uh, there are times in our lives that we feel perplexed about God's 
providence that we may even question, is he really there in control? And why is that? Because we don't understand the purpose of some of the things that we face. God's providence may at times appear inefficient for us, may appear weird and, and, and unexplainable. It's not just in, in the life of, uh, of the, the apostles, as recorded in the book of Acts, throughout history. Uh, a clear example of this is the, the, what for me was the, the greatest preacher of the 17th century, uh, well, at least one of the best preachers, John Bunyan. Twelve years in prison. One of the best preachers of his time. These are the words, for instance, of John Owen. When he was, had a conference with King Charles II, he said to King Charles, uh, he would gladly give, out, uh, give away all his learned wisdom if he could only have the power of John Bunyan's preaching. He would trade all his learning for John Bunyan's power to preach. And there, 12 years in prison, and you ask, what is the, the good of that? Wouldn't it but me be much better for John Bunyan to be uh, out on the, on the pulpits of the nation? For us, 400 years later, 300, 400 years later, it is easy to see the, God, uh, the providence of God. Because without those 12 years in prison, we wouldn't have such a, a great work, a treasure of, of God's goodness to us as Pilgrim's Progress. It was, it was throughout those 12 years that John Bunyan wrote them. Wrote, the, wrote the, the, them, the both volumes of Pilgrim's Progress. The answer from our perspective is clear. God was in control. God used those things for good. And now you ask, why was Paul in prison for two years in Caesarea? Wouldn't it have been so much better for him to be taken uh, out of prison? Wouldn't it have been so much better for him to continue his ministry of going from region to region and establishing churches? If you were there in, at that time, you would be sulking and, and, and probably uh, questioning the, the soundness and the wiseness of, of, of him being in prison. Wouldn't it have been much better spent those two years taking the Gospels to the nations? Something there he was doing so successfully. We will not always understand we, the, the purposes of God. We will not always understand in this life the provisions of God. We will not always understand why we become, became unemployed. Why is it that we suffered this, uh, this disease? Why is it that we had this uh, frowning providence thrown our ways? We're not called to understand how God, uh, what God is doing. What we are called to do when faced with challenging circumstances is to trust. Sometimes the Lord in his goodness will make it clear to us. Shortly after those things come to us, sometimes it takes years before we understand why is it that, that uh, such things have happened. Sometimes it's not really clear to us. It is only clear to others. 
whether in our, during our lifetimes or after our death. Sometimes only heaven will shed light on these things, or most times only heaven will shed light on these things. But what we are called to do is not to interpret, not to seek to understand, but to trust the one who is in control. In Paul's case, it is clear God's providence was in control. We can see it uh, uh, with the benefit of, of 2,000 years of history. It was God's goodness to him, because he would have otherwise been killed by the Jews, and to us, the God's people, because otherwise we wouldn't have the, the richness of epistles that we have that he wrote in, during his imprisonment. Otherwise, uh, it wouldn't have been as beneficial to those of, uh, to whom Paul preached and ministered while in captivity, while in prison. But what we are called to do is to trust that he will accomplish his pleasing, perfect will. And that it is always for good of those who trust in him. The verses that we have before us speak of this. Briefly recount his defense before Festus, the rejection of Festus of the, of the proposal of the Jews. We have the, the denial of the charges uh, of the apostle before Festus. And we have the refusal uh, um, of Festus' uh, proposal to Paul and the apostles' appeal to be tried in Rome. So let's just quickly run through these three points. First of all, Felix, you remember him from last week. Felix, the governor who was uh, in charge of the region of Judea uh, in, in these days, uh, who, in, uh, who was not a great uh, uh, governor. Political expediency for him was the rule, uh, and he enforced uh, whatever was better for him for his personal advantage. Luke tells us, that he kept Paul in prison for two years. That's at the end of the, the previous chapter. For two years, Paul was there. Because maintaining order was the first priority for Felix. Maintaining peace was his priority. And he thought, well, if I keep Paul in prison, I'll, I'll maintain peace. The reality is that throughout his reign, throughout his governorship, he didn't maintain peace. In fact, uh, the reason why he was uh, taken away from the, the role of being a governor was because peace was, was, was non-existent in, uh, in Judea. All that region was plagued with civil disorder, so much so that he was called by Nero, now the, the emperor of Rome. This is historical fact that is uh, recorded for us by different historians, uh, historians like Josephus, historians like Seneca's, uh, Seneca. Um, Felix was called to Rome to give an answer, to be tried for his mismanagement of the region of Judea. And the only reason why Felix uh, got away with, uh, with just being demoted or taken away the governorship is because a friend uh, his, uh, of Nero was Pallas, his brother. So Felix might have well suffered a much worse fate uh, had not he had a friend 
uh, in Nero's ear, his brother Paulus. The man who replaced him is Festus. Festus is the one who, who comes to, to take Felix's place. And it was a welcomed change. We don't know uh, much about him. History books are, are much uh, shorter uh, in, in this uh, referring to uh, Festus because he had a very temporary governorship. He died uh, about two years, three years after, or after he assumed the, the reins of power in the region. But he was one that was well-received. The, the ones that followed from him, uh, Lucinius Albinus, 62-64, and then later on, Gessius Florus, the, from 64 to 66, uh, were much more violent and much more uh, brazen in their actions. Not much is known about Festus, but he came in late 60s, early 60s, late 59, early 60s. He was there for two years. He was involved much of the time uh, fixing the problems of his previous of the previous administration or maladministration, we might say, and the direction of the region was invariably uh, going in a bad uh, in a bad way. He would eventually lead to the Jewish wars, where Nero would send his legions to come and take care of the Jewish problem, and they raised uh, Jerusalem to the ground, and they 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 destroyed the temple. But that's a story for a different time. Festus, he comes in and he hits the ground running. We are told in verse 1 of chapter 25 that immediately upon reaching the region, three day, uh, upon reaching Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem three days later and he was trying to get a hold of the situation. Three days and he's there getting acquainted. Uh, according to Josephus, he, he, he was very expedient in, a, in, a, in his dealings. So he makes an efficient, official visit to Jerusalem. He meets the Jewish leadership. And what, what is on the Jewish leadership mind? Paul. Two years later and they're still uh, grumpy and they're still upset uh, with Paul. Luke does not mention much more of the details, but that there is this problem hanging over Feaster's head. This is a big issue in, in preventing the peace in Jerusalem. And probably he had, is under specific rule uh, uh, orders from the Emperor Nero to come and deal with the problem that his predecessor had caused or was unable to fix they want to murder. Uh, the Jews want Paul to come to Jerusalem. And, uh, and Luke is clear. He tells us uh, the, the purpose is to murder uh, Paul. The purpose is to, to, to kill him. Matthew Henry says, see how impatient and mal a malicious thing is. Paul endures the prolongation of his imprisonment more patiently than his enemies do with regard to his condemnation to death. Paul is more patient than, than, uh, than the Jews. But thankfully for Paul, Festus says no. Instead, instead of bringing the apostle up to Jerusalem so that he may be judged by the, by the Sanhedrin, Paul, uh, Festus says no. 
I will go down in a moment to Caesarea, and once I'm there, I'll bring Paul out, and you guys come, and you guys uh, lay the accusation against him. He wanted to have good relations with the Jews, but in this case, he was unable or unwilling to, to give them what they wanted. And you might ask, why? If he were, he, why wasn't he giving them what they, they wanted? Well, political play. Feastus is a politician. You don't come in, a brand new governor, and start doing whatever else, what everyone else is telling you to do. Because otherwise you're just a push around. You need to give, but you need to take, and you need to, to keep a little bit of the balance. He wouldn't want them to think that he could be pushed around. Maybe that was it. Maybe, perhaps, uh, Festus already had a, a word with Claudius Lysias upon reaching Jerusalem, the, the, the commander. And he knew what the Jews were up to. And he was unwilling to let a Roman citizen die under his watch. A Roman citizen under his care to die under his watch. Whatever it was, all these circumstances, whatever the, the, the human motivations behind these things, one thing is clear. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. And the same is true of all of us, brothers and sisters. The same is true of me, the same is true of you. What often seems like others are in control, look at Paul's life, it seems like he's He's at the mercy of, of Felix. And then it seems like he's at the mercy of Festus. And it seems like he's at the mercy of everyone and anyone. It may seem to you and to me at times that we are at the mercy and under the control of others. And that others hold so much power and sway over our lives. But let it be known to you that God never abdicates his rule over every detail of your life, over every detail of my life. And everything that is happening here is happening under God's sovereign control. The following verses after this interaction detail for us, in summary, because Luke already told us quite a bit of this, uh, and he doesn't want to be repetitive, uh, the, the charges being laid. In verse 6, he says, When he had remained among them for more than ten days, so... Festus was, again, diligent. He, he was uh, seeking to get involved and, and understand what was going on. And uh, he went down to Caesarea. And the following day, no, no loss of time there. He wants to get this taken care of. The following day, he sits on the judgment seat. He commands Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews came in. And again, this is very summarized. I'm sure this took more than uh, what Luke is telling us here in a summary fashion. Uh, they came down, they laid very serious accusations against Paul again. What were the accusations? The same ones from two years ago or three years ago. The same ones that, that they had brought before Felix. Political sedition, uh, profaning the temple, uh, uh, speak, uh, being a, 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 a ruler of a sect, all of those things. And again, we have a summary we're just told here by, that Paul said neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor against Caesar. None of those accusations uh, uh, have any proof. I'm innocent. Again, this is all summary. But I'm sure Paul had much more to say on that day than what Luke 
represents for us. And then, finding himself in this predicament, and, and Paul actually says, if I'm an offender, if I have committed anything deserving of that, I, I do not object. I, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which uh, uh, you accuse me of, these men accuse me of, I appeal to Caesar. You see, Festus proposes to him. Well, let's go down to, up to Jerusalem. Let's go up to Jerusalem, and there you will sit before me, and I'll judge you there. He proposes to him to go to Jerusalem. And evidently, the, this proposal made no sense. We know that they wanted to ambush and to kill him. And Paul appeals to, to Caesar. F.F. F. Bruce, the, uh, uh, a Christian theologian, a commentator, very uh, well-versed in Roman uh, history, he, he mentions that this was a very normal thing to happen. He says that the, the appealing to Caesar was, uh, was well within the Roman jurisprudence. It's one of the oldest rights of a Roman citizen was to appeal to the, to the Roman praetorium. praetorium. It was to, and the, ever since the founding of the Republic, he says, in, 15, uh, uh, in 509 uh, uh, before Christ, You might ask, is it really wise on the part of Paul to appeal to Caesar? By the way, remember that Caesar, uh, uh, in, at this moment, that the emperor at this moment is Nero. Uh, I don't, you don't need to be a, a, a Roman history scholar to know that Nero was perhaps the craziest, or one of them. There, there's other ones. Caligula comes to mind. Uh, but there, there are a few uh, Roman emperors that... that uh, have went down in history for being barbaric and violent and, and unhinged. And Nero is certainly in the top three, let's say. Is it wise for Paul to appeal to, to Caesar in this case? Again, F.F. F. Bruce gives us a, a very uh, uh, important insight in this. When he says that Nero's administration in the early years was very uh, balanced and stable, he says that due to the influence of his friend and philosopher Seneca and Sextus Afranius Burrus, the prefix, uh, lovely name, the prefect, uh, prefect of the Praetorian Guard, uh, the early years of Nero were actually very balanced and very stable. They were not as barbaric and as violent as the later years of his rule. So the apostle appeals to Caesar. But I think the apostle appeals to Caesar not so much because, the Paul appeals to Caesar not so much because he was uh, trying to save his life. Maybe Caesar will acquit me. He had it on his mind for years now. He wants to go to Rome. So he appeals to Caesar. And Festus, being taken aback by this appeal, what does he do? He consults with the, with the council there. And he says, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Very well-known words. Uh, one, some, perhaps some of the more familiar words of, the, new t of the, the book of Acts. 
But what will we learn from this passage? This is just the, the, the sum of the detail. What is the application for us? First of all, and again, I don't think it's the first time I, I mentioned this, we learn the obstinacy of the opponents of the gospel. The Jewish leaders in the previous chapter were, were, were clear and, and very expedient. They, they, they got a lawyer. They took all the necessary steps. They headed there to lay the charges on him. Two years later, they even made a vow to, to not eat or drink, and it makes you wonder, did they eventually break that vow, or did they just die and these are other ones? Because they wouldn't probably have been able to keep from eating and drinking for two years. But two years later, they are still at it. They still want to see Paul dead, buried in a grave. They are still wanting to ambush him and to kill him. And they travel to Festus and they're still trying to do it. When the Apostle Paul wrote himself concerning this obstinacy of the enemies of the gospel in Romans 3, verse 13 and 18. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poisons of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the enemies of the gospel. And let us never lose sight of this. Let us remember that we are in a battle, that this is a matter of life and death. Secondly, I think it's important again to mark the determination and the motivation of the Apostle Paul. Two years in detention in Caesarea, probably a few more, there's still a few more years to come in detention, but he hasn't diminished in his confidence that he will go to Rome, that he will yet come and testify of Christ, uh, uh, and testify of Christ in Rome. That's what he says in verse 11, I appeal to Caesar. He wants to go there by any means necessary. His chief motivation is not his safety or his comfort. His chief motivation is to get to Rome. As Christ had actually told him a few chapters before, that he would be a witness at Rome. But finally, brothers and sisters, the lesson we learn in this passage is about the providence of God where we started. It's the wise, sovereign providence of God controlling all things. God has said that Paul is going to go to Rome and, and God will direct everything in order that he will find himself there. And all of us who are obedient to God's call, all of us who strive to be his witnesses, we may have the same confidence that he will protect us, that he will be our shield, our fortress until our mission is done. Until our purpose, uh, until the, purpo- the mission he has given us is accomplished. And nothing will divert us from that. What is 
What is it about God's providence that is so difficult to understand? You see, Paul had a little bit of a of a of a window into God's purposes. God had told him, "You're going to go to Rome." That's that's great and that's marvelous. But God never told him his plan, did he? God never told him in what circumstances are you going to go to Rome. God never said, oh, you're going to get to Rome and you're going to have this triumphal entry-like reception in Rome. People will be uh, shouting your name. There will be signs all over the place saying, the great Apostle Paul is coming to town. Come and see his miracles and hear his his message of love. There was no band or fanfare for uh, promise to Paul. The great preacher of the, uh, of the, of the, of the Christianity of this century is coming to Rome. No. In fact, there would be no welcoming party. There would be no big reception. Surely, we may think, Paul was worthy of better treatment than this. After all he has done, after all that he has accomplished for, for, the, for Christianity, surely he deserves a little bit more respect. I deserve better. I deserve better. Why is the Lord doing this to me? I deserve better. In similar circumstances, we feel sorry for ourselves. We sulk and we and we we groan and we and we complain and we grumble like the Israelites in the wilderness. What does Paul do? He's content. In fact, the most joyous letter that he has uh, that is written, and it's, this is this is not me just trying to to to. It is considered by all, or by many. It's always hard to say by all. It is considered by all that the most joyous letter in the New Testament is the letter to the Philippians. It was written in these circumstances. A little bit later, from Acts 25, it is written once he arrives in Rome and he's under a house arrest there. But Paul's most joyous letter is written under the most grievous circumstances in his life. Let that that sink in. Under the most suffering of his life is when he found the, 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 the inspiration, the Holy Spirit inspiration, I might add, to be the most joyful in the letters he writes. What does he write there? I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Philippians 4, uh, verse 11. And why does he say that? I have learned. Why? Because it doesn't come natural to us to be content, to be trusting. It doesn't come natural to to any of us. It didn't come natural to Paul to be content, to trust in the Lord's providence. He had to learn. He had to reason with his temperament, with this disposition. He had to look and and learn and, 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 and force himself to come to terms with God's providence, to wait upon him. 
was going to bring a book that I forgot up here because I, I didn't take the notes from it. But you know the... the just looking at the time. You know the um, Jonathan Aitken? Is that a name that rings a bell to, to some of you? Uh, he was a politician, right, in the, uh, in the 90s, and he, he got uh, involved uh, in a, a scandal, uh, and he got imprisoned in, in uh, Belmarsh for a few for a year and a half, but he only stayed there for a few months. Uh, he became a Christian there. And I have a copy of his biography, uh, and uh, I've been trying to read through, through it. But there's a story there of uh, this uh, gentleman, and again, I forgot to bring the book, so I'm probably going to misquote him here. But Lord Longford, uh, and he came to visit him just a few days after uh, uh, Jonathan Aitken came, came to, to prison. And it's a funny story, that it, the way that he recalls it, but uh, in, in and of itself. But there's a, a spiritual uh, instruction there for us. When um, there is a, a, an illus- spiritual illustration for us, when um, Lord um, Longford comes and sees him, he's an old man, uh, but he turns to him and he says, oh, how, I, how I envy you. How he said that he had been with the Queen Mother the previous day, that it was just as good to be with him there in the, in the, in the prison. Uh, and he says, I almost envy you because uh, to be humbled by God is painful, but it is a sure sign of, uh, of his love and of his care for you. To be humbled by God is painful, but it's a sure sign of his love for you. And Jonathan Aiken in the book, uh, he, he speaks quite a bit about this, uh, but he says that it, this was the beginning of his conversion. It was to, to be humbled by God in suffering is a sure sign of his love. There are different types of suffering, brothers and sisters. There are, there are sufferings that are designed to do different things in our lives, but suffering almost surely always humbles us in his presence. Paul, over the years, suffered. Even before he was in prison, he suffered quite a bit. But over these two years, he was suffering. This was not a walk in the park. Yes, over a period, uh, throughout, in a, over, there was a period of this imprisonment that he was in the, in the palace of the governor. He was given, afforded some, some uh, freedoms. But we read, don't we, uh, of the many dangers, the, the shipwrecks that will happen because of his imprisonment, the, the times that he was cold in the winter, the times that he was without his books and his parchments. It, it wasn't a smooth uh, uh, sail for him being in prison. It was suffering. And where do we read in the New Testament? Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Which book of the Bible does Paul say that? Under the inspiration of the Spirit? Again, the book of Philippians. The book uh, that is written after all of these suffering experiences. Why? Because I believe that Paul had been humbled in that prison. In that prison. He experienced cold winters. He wanted some cloaks. He wanted some clothing. He experienced the loss of dignity. In which book does he speak about being humbled? 
taking on the form of a servant. The book of Philippians. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say is, I don't know, well, I know some of the things some of us are going through. But perhaps no one knows. Sometimes we suffer in silence. Some of us are better at suffering in silence than others. But one thing I know, suffering in God's purposes are, is not meaningless, it is meaningful. And the what is incumbent on us is not to try and discern, interpret why is it that these things are happening to us? Why, what is God trying to do so that I may stop suffering? I, I know that is a very uh, human, uh, natural thing that comes to us. I know all of us go through this. And while we're suffering, what is it that I'm doing wrong so that I can learn it so that this can stop? I've heard this said. I've said it myself. We all say it. But that's not the point. The point is for us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to cast our cares upon him and to trust him, that he is good, that he is a fortress to those who trust in him and that he cares for us. Our point, uh, the point for us is not to waste our suffering, grumbling and complaining, but to think how this suffering can help me become more like my master. Because that's what, happened, that's what happened to Paul. That's what happened to many of suffering Christians throughout the ages. With suffering comes a recollection, comes, a, comes a, 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 a being transformed into the image and likeness of our master. So instead of asking what is the purpose to all of this, let us ask, Lord, what do you want me to do with all of this? What do you want me to do with my suffering? How is it that I can showcase the glory of Christ with the things that I'm going through? It can be an unemployment, can be a, can be a, a, a sickness, can be a, a, a other trialing circumstances in life can all can be a, a loss of a loved one can be all kinds of things uh, and not being admitted suffering is is one of those things that is very subjective and uh, it is very relative to to each individual some things that for me are not suffering for for others might be deeply uh, strenuous and, and and hard and the reverse is true but what we are called to do is to trust. As, Paul, as God says in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, uh, not your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We are called to trust him. That's what we are called to do, brothers and sisters. Let us trust him in all our troubles. Let us trust his love, his care, his goodness. Let us rest and lean upon him day by day.